web at wagp.net. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Welcome to the Bible line. If you are a first time listener for the next hour, we will be taking people's questions as they've been studying God's word and maybe trying to sort through a particular passage as it refers to its meaning or application. And so if we can be of help, uh, again, the number locally uh, that you can use is 843-525-1859, 525-1859, area code 843, or the toll-free number is 877, the call letters WAGP980. Uh, many people choose just to email us here directly into the studio, and if you'd like to do that, we'd be happy to receive your question that way. The email address is TBL. That stands for the Bible line, TBL at W-A-G-P dot net. Rick, as always, it's great to be here. So let's go ahead and we'll get started with some of the questions that have already come in. Indeed, Pastor, we have a number of them and the lines are already ringing. So um, let's go to a question that came in at the end of our program last week. A caller would like you to please explain uh, John 10.10 in context and how that applies to modern day theology. All right, let me just turn there. Um, the event of John 10, of course, takes place right after the healing of the blind man. And right after Jesus uh, heals this man who had congenitally been born blind, he said, truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. Uh, but he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. And so he's using a familiar illustration, especially with so many shepherds in the first century there in Israel. And you would often uh, have a uh, wall in your home and that would serve as one wall of a sheep's fold. And then you'd, you'd build three other walls. And at the entrance, there'd be a door. Or if you're out in the wilderness, you might find a cave and the entrance to the cave would be the door. And so he makes it very clear uh, to him the doorkeeper opens and the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he puts forth all his own, he goes before them and the, she and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. So again, you know, there's a doorkeeper. Sometimes a shepherd would come at the end of a day. Uh, there would be a hired man who would care for the sheep, guard the sheep at night from thieves and when the morning came the shepherd would come and he wouldn't send the dog in to round up the sheep all he had to do was uh, give his voice and when he gave his voice uh, that was all that was necessary in terms of uh, the sheep to be able to respond so um, anyway um, with that said not everybody uh, was a good shepherd and then it goes on to say this figure of speech Jesus spoke to them but they did not understand what those things were, which he had been saying to them. Jesus therefore said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. 
All who uh, come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. So he's talking about primarily the, the leadership of the day, not men like John the Baptist or Moses or the prophets who all pointed people to the coming of the Messiah. But he was focusing on the false teachers, the false leaders that were prevalent in his day. And of course, uh, they wanted to take this man in John 9, whom he just healed and put him outside of uh put him outside of the temple uh, with a woman caught in adultery. Uh, they wanted to have her stoned to death. Uh, they were not good shepherds. They were evil shepherds and their motives were entirely wrong. So he goes on to say, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he shall be saved. So in this second analogy, he describes himself both as the door and the shepherd, which of course is how it took place when you're out in the wilderness uh, when you were not in your village at night where you had a, uh, a pen where there might be several shepherds that would keep them in, or maybe you had a place in the side of your house. When you're out in the wilderness, you served as both the shepherd and the door. Uh, you would find a cave typically, and the sheep would go in, and you would lay at the entrance. And so Jesus describes him pl- himself as playing in both roles here. And then he says, the thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy And I've come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. So it's in that context that he he makes this statement that the thief comes only to kill and to destroy and to steal. So I think it's clear in the Gospels that the religious rulers of Israel were interested in just themselves. Uh, Jesus said that they were motivated by greed in Luke's Gospel. They basically wanted to lie in their own pockets in one of the... uh, most scathing sermons that he gave. He said they devoured widows' houses. They were very covetous. They, they preyed on people, and especially widows, uh, to pad their own wallets. But by contrast, him as the good shepherd, he came to save the sheep. And these false ship shepherds, in essence, took advantage of the sheep. And so rightly, they can be called thieves. Um, but I think you can argue, and I think legitimately, that this is also a reference to Satan. Because according to Matthew's gospel, uh, in a number of places, he is the one working behind the false shepherds. So basically, you can say, yes, these false leaders are thieves, but they are also being motivated by an evil leader who comes not to provide life, but only to steal and to destroy. And they would do whatever they needed to do to preserve their own little religious kingdoms and Uh, Their motives were entirely evil. So uh, you might want to, if you want a really detailed answer, uh, I've preached through the Gospel of John. And if you go to searchthescriptures.org and click on the Gospel of John, uh, I'm assuming I probably, uh, yeah, I'm sure I did. I would have uh, broken the text here at 10.1. So just go find John 10. And I'm not sure how far I went in that sermon, but it's probably the first 18 verses. It looks like a single pericope or section of scripture, and um, you can listen to that message. I think you'd find that helpful. All right, very good. Sue from Buford writes, I really want to know and pray God's promises. During my quiet time, when I come across one that I think applies to me, I write it down. I'm up to 19. I know that some of the promises are conditional and some are not meant for me to be uh, the context, uh, for me by the context, rather. What I'm a little confused about is whether I can pray a promise for someone else's life. For example, in 1 John 5.14, if I pray according to his will, he says that he hears me and I have what I asked of him. If another believer out of ignorance or weak teaching 
is doing something clearly outside the will of God, can I pray that promise and have it answered, have it be answered? Also, uh, in James 1.5, can I ask for wisdom for someone else? Well, surely you can ask for wisdom for someone else and you can pray and ask God's will to be accomplished in someone who's deviant or rebellious or ignorant. Uh, but the question, and it's a great question, uh, the question is whether or not I can believe God when it involves another person. And it depends on the circumstances and the situation. Uh, for instance, uh, I've had people come to me and maybe a spouse has left them. And more and more, the entry level into the church is a problem in the home. And so every pastor in America, almost on a weekly basis, is dealing with people who come to the church brokenhearted and their husband, their wife has left them. And, and so they say, I know God doesn't like divorce. And they're right. Uh, Malachi 2.16, I, the God of Israel, hate divorce. So if it's not God's will for divorce and you take first John five, you know, this is the confidence we have before him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So um, if he hears me, then I know I can have the request. So the question is, can I believe God to heal that marriage? And you should certainly pray towards that end. But when there is another person's will involved, God never supersedes the will of another person. So, while you would want to intercede, say, for that person's marriage to be healed. And in that sense, you know, you're praying directly in the will of God because you know how God feels about broken promises. On the other hand, those people still have a free will. Now, God may answer your prayer in the sense that he will, uh, in his grace, move upon the person's heart and life and maybe craft circumstances to give them every possible motive and reason to say, no, I'm doing the wrong thing. I want to fix this. And God can certainly respond to your prayers in that way. But no, you do not have a definitive promise. Well, it's God's will, say, for a person not to get divorced. Therefore, I'm going to believe God to heal my friend's marriage or my son's marriage or my daughter's marriage or whoever it may be, because I know this is his will. But no, there's another person involved. And that person also has a free will in while you should, would be very wise to intercede for them, uh, you cannot accomplish God's will uh, through your prayer on behalf of them. You could certainly, I think, um, um, move the hand of God uh, to make circumstances as such that they would possibly want to make things right, but God never forces his will on people. It's much like um, I was counseling someone recently, an adult, and They'd been abused as a child and <clears throat> sodomized by a, another man. And, and their question was, where, where was God in all of that? And I said, well, he, he, he was right there. Well, why didn't he do something? Well, he's going to do something. And I, I brought that person to a text of scripture where Jesus speaks about stumbling blocks. And he said, woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. Uh, for it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to that man through whom the stumbling blocks come. And in reference to children, he says, whoever receives such a child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it is better for him that a heavy millstone be hung around his neck and that he be drowned in the depth of the, of the sea. So my point to that individual was no, God was there. God saw it and God was so disgusted with it 
in terms of how you were violated, that God is going to someday make every wrong right. And so God was there, but God does not force his will on people. If God did that, then we would really no longer be made in the image of God. And part of being made in the Imago Dei is that you have a free will. You have the ability to truly, genuinely choose. God doesn't pre-program the will. He doesn't make you choose. Um, You have a free will to make a decision. And that's why Jesus said, God is watching people who harm even little children and someday he'll make every wrong right. It's just not the time. So um, keep praying for your friends. Pray that God would give them wisdom. Pray that God would show them the folly of their lifestyle. And, and God often uses someone who stands in the gap uh, between heaven and earth, interceding for that person. And so the prophet speaks of, is there anyone who's going to stand in the gap and intercede? And so God will respond to your prayer. But again, when there's another person involved, that person still has a free will. So uh, I hope that helps. It's a really great question on prayer. Let's go to the next one. All right. A caller said that uh, she heard your last message uh, this past Sunday about uh, in one section, you said a Joseph had married a believing Egyptian. And this caller would like to hear you talk more about this. Well, Asenath um, was um, not a Jewish person, but Moses was a righteous man. That's how God describes him. And so it becomes apparent that the mother also was righteous, though we don't have a specific chapter and verse like that. But I think it's safe to assume that Joseph was in the center of God's will. He was in a foreign culture. And while God forbade Israel to marry um, uh, an unbeliever, he didn't forbid Israel to marry outside of the Hebrew race. So Moses ends up marrying a Cushite woman. Um, No doubt Moses, who is a righteous man, married a believer. Uh, So the prohibition that God gave is the same prohibition you find in the New Testament, where a believer is not to be bound together to an unbeliever. And it's obviously apparent that Joseph married a godly woman who recognized the God of Israel. Gentiles, you know, could be saved, obviously, in Joseph's day or uh, during the time when God had a unique covenantal relationship exclusively with Israel. That covenantal relationship has been set aside while he's building his church, but uh, it didn't preclude Gentiles from coming to faith. Gentiles um, were witnessed to by Jews. The Jews were to be a light to the Gentiles. And so there he is far away from home. And uh, he obviously has a desire to be married and God brings him a wife. And I think I brought it up in the context, at least in one of the services, some things, uh, you know, they just come to mind, but, you know, occasionally people have asked me about black Jewish people. And it is, it's a really good question because, you know, you have all these black Jewish people who are immigrating to Israel by the tens of thousands, especially from the country of Ethiopia. And where did black people come into the Hebrew race? Well, no doubt through Joseph who married an Egyptian who would have been black and he had two sons. And so you have all these black Jewish people even today uh, who were part of, you know, God's covenantal people. 
So anyway, uh, but here's the general principle. A believer can only marry a believer. And for a Jewish person, that typically meant another Jew, but it could be a Gentile, uh, i.e. Moses and Joseph. And they were both godly men, righteous men. So the way God you know, describes their life, affirms that they were in the center of God's will. And that's why they were used so mightily by the Lord. And uh, they um, no doubt married true believers. Good question. Let's go to the next one. All right. Our next caller would like you to please explain Psalm 2, verse 11. Psalm 2 is really a, a moving psalm. It's a, it's a um, messianic psalm that describes the, God's future. Um, and it uh, has so much to say in terms of uh, what Messiah will do. <clears throat> it, it opens, let me just turn there for a second. Um, find the text, here we go. Psalms, I always tell people often, you know, when you um, are a pastor and you're trying to help people find the books of the Bible, you can't assume anything, especially the Old Testament. And so I'll say, well, find Psalms. Most people can find that because that's about dead center in most people's Bibles. And then you tell them to turn to the left or the right. So um, it begins, it says, why are the nations in an uproar and the people's devising vain things? Uh, The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord. Uh, The word there is in all caps, meaning Yahweh against Yahweh. And against his anointed, uh, anointed here is um, God's chosen one. So this is in reference to, to King David. Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. And then, uh, so he, he's describing why, why the Nathans, the Goyim, uh, the Gentiles here, synonymous with unbelievers. The word Gentile, Goyim in Hebrew, uh, ethnoi in the plural, Gentiles in the New Testament, um, are in reference to pagans or uh, to non-Jews. So context determines. So like when Jesus said, don't pray like the Gentiles. Uh, some of the new translations don't render it that way. They say, don't pray like the pagans. Um, and that's interpretive, but it's actually the word Gentile. Why? Because Gentiles for the most part were pagans. But sometimes the word Gentile is used to describe a uh, ethnicity, someone who's a non-Jew. So he's basically saying, why are the nations, why are the goyim, why are the pagans in an uproar and devising vain things? And he's describing this opposition that people have against the Lord God. And so what's interesting is beginning in verse four, you have a response from God the Father. This is really a Trinitarian Psalm. In verse seven, you have a response from God the Son. And then in verses 10 through 12, God, the spirit, he, the father who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. And so he speaks of Messiah. And so beginning in verse seven, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, thou art my son. Today I've begotten thee. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as thine inheritance and the very ends of the earth is thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt shatter them like earthenware. And then beginning now in verse 10, which brings us in the context of your question, 
There's really, you hear now the voice of God, the spirit. Now, therefore, O king, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the son, lest he become angry and you perish in the way for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. So worship the Lord in reverence. Worship the Lord in reverence. That's a very, very important point that you want to underscore in your mind. You don't flippantly worship the living God. Uh, You enter his presence with a sense of trembling, the psalmist says. King David, no doubt, is um, penning this psalm. And how do I know that? Because the New Testament gives him credit for it, though his authorship is not acknowledged here in Psalm 2. Sometimes at the top of a psalm, like at the beginning of uh, Psalm 3, it says a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. Uh, That's not a uh, editorial note put in by some publisher. That's part of the scripture. And so in a lot of uh, Bibles, it's like in the Hebrew Bible, that would be verse one. And verse two might be, oh Lord, how are my adversaries, how my adversaries have increased. Um, And so sometimes the numbering is slightly different in the Hebrew Bible because they take the inscription wanting to acknowledge that it is uh, part of the word of God. But we don't know who the author is of Psalm 2 from Psalm 2 itself, but in the book of Acts, in the fourth chapter, David is credited with this particular psalm. And so it's not by by accident when it's quoted. And that's how I know we, we have three voices, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit speaking. But when you approach God, you worship him in fear and reverence. Uh, fear like a, a slave who's going to be beaten by his master. No, there is a sense in which the Bible says perfect love casts out all fear because fear involves punishment. And so in Christ, the father has been propitiated. Jesus didn't deal with most of God's wrath or some of it, but all of it. So in, sense, uh, in the sense of fearing God in terms of him punishing us, the answer is no. Uh, God's punishment has been taken out in a substitute. But punishment in terms of discipline, yes, that still very much exists. Those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And those who worship God are to worship him in spirit and in truth. So you don't flippantly uh, come into God's presence. You come with a sense of reverence, with a, an acknowledgement of who he is. And to me, it's pitiful what is happening in the seeker sensitive movement. You know, um, people uh, come to church and they're in the worship service with uh, a donut in one hand and a coffee in the other. And f- to me, it just doesn't really fit the picture, not just in this Psalm, but throughout the Bible in terms of how we approach God and worship. And the American church has lost its sense of reverence for the living God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So there's that sense in which we revere the Lord and he is holy. And when we see him someday, uh, just like Isaiah, who was given a vision of God, who said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of God of hosts. And just like the residents of heaven in Revelation four repeatedly sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. You will just see how holy he is and how the opposite of um, us he is. And so uh, this this verse has full application for today. Uh, We need to revere God and we don't flippantly come into his presence. We come with clean hands, clean hearts. Our hearts need to be um, clear before the Lord. Uh, We should deal with any known sin in our lives. 
and we should approach God accordingly. All right, very good. 843-525-1859 if you have a question on today's Bible line. And Joe from Eastman, Georgia, would like to know whether the Antichrist will know that he is the Antichrist. Well, that's, that's a good question. We're coming, of course, uh, to the revelation where we will see the Antichrist at work. We, we did some study on him uh, when we were working through the book of Daniel. Most people don't realize it, but the book in the Bible that gives us more information about the Antichrist than any other single book is actually the prophet Daniel. But remember, the Antichrist is, is Satan's man, and while Satan is certainly intelligent, uh, he's not omniscient like God is. He doesn't know everything, and he cannot precisely know every single future event. Uh, most people believe that, you know, Antichrist, um, there was a potential Antichrist in every century, and I, and I think that's possible. Satan doesn't know when, for instance, the rapture will happen. He doesn't know. Um, so it's very possible that he's had prepared in every generation and every century a person who would be of his picking, of his choosing. And so I think if uh, the rapture happened today, Satan knows who his man is. He knows who it is that uh, he is going to, uh, you know, choose and, and lure. Now, with that said, the Antichrist has a free will. And this kind of gets back to the first, sesh, uh, first question that we were asked. Part of being made in the image of God is having a free will. And so just like Jesus can describe Judas as the son of perdition, and by the way, the only one else who's called the son of perdition in the Bible is the Antichrist. So that is the term that's given to both Judas and to the Antichrist. With that said, I think what's true of Judas, you could say is certainly true of the Antichrist. And so Jesus calls him the son of perdition because Judas Iscariot, as an act of his own free will, chose to betray the Lord Jesus. Uh, Judas never became a believer. Uh, he was not a puppet. He had a free will. And I think sometimes even uh, at the Last Supper, when Jesus chooses to wash the feet of Judas, uh, he is being merciful and kind. Uh, and he doesn't burn his feet with hot water, but he doesn't respond. And he's still an unbeliever, and he then chooses to take from the sop, and the Bible says that Satan entered into him. So... Uh, the Antichrist will choose to be the Antichrist. Will he know he's the Antichrist? Uh, well, yes, he is going to make a covenant with Israel. He has a definitive plan. And so we will study this plan when we come to Revelation 6. If you're listening to us for the first time at Community Bible Church, uh, we are working chapter by chapter and verse by verse through the book of Revelation. And last Sunday, we turned a corner we came into the futuristic section, and so in chapters 4 and 5, we're in the throne room of God, and we're getting really a glimpse of glory, and in the fifth chapter, it serves as a bridge into the sixth chapter, and the fifth chapter, the scroll uh, that contains the uh, sealed judgments are given to God the Son, and beginning in the sixth chapter, we will begin to see the Son of God open up those seals. And the first four seals are what we call the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And the first seal uh, is a rider on a white horse that's not Jesus, it's the Antichrist, who will come as a great imitator. 
He will come with a definitive purpose uh, initially <coughs> to, excuse me, to make a covenant with Israel, a covenant that he will end up breaking and he will want the world ultimately to worship him. So uh, yes, he's very much aware in terms of his plan and what he's doing because even the Antichrist, even angels, even Satan, Satan and all the angels, both holy and elect are described as persons in the Bible. They're not human persons, they're angelic persons. And part of being made a person is you have mind, will and emotion. So even angels display mind, will and emotion. They have the ability to think, they have the ability to feel, they have the ability to choose. And the Antichrist is made in the image of God. We are made higher than angels, but he is a human person and he displays intellect, emotion, and will. He's a free moral agent and he will know precisely what he is doing. He will have rejected Jesus just like Judas did. This man will reject Jesus and he will become by a choice that he makes an agent of the evil one. Um, we're going to really explore this in detail. That's a short answer. I know, but we are going to delve into it. So uh, some of the questions in revelation that people ask us is just, just wait, we're coming to that chapter. You know, uh, we'll get there. Wait till we get there and, and we'll explore it in more detail. All right. Very good. A listener in Fayetteville, North Carolina writes, I have the opportunity to teach at a local Christian college in my area. The issue, each student enrolled in the homiletics class is required to prepare and preach a sermon, including the women. The college's president and at least two professors believe that the scriptures don't permit women to be pastors or preach in the church. And that's my position as well, he writes. I'm unsure why the president allows it in the homiletics class, maybe because of the board of directors or that the student body mostly consists of students from churches that allow women to preach or pastor. The question, should I take the teaching position? It's a great question, and I appreciate your heart behind it because it tells me that you want to do what is right and pleasing to the Lord. I went to uh, Dallas Theological Seminary, and uh, it grieves me to say that Dallas Seminary is changing. Uh, they would tell you that they are complementarian. Uh, much like you are describing the president of this college. And there are two important theological terms, egalitarianism and complementarianism. Egalitarians believe that men and women are equal. And we all believe that in their, our stature before God. But they then say, not only are we equal in our position or stature before God, we, we inherit the same salvation, but also in the roles that we can play. Whereas complementarianism says men and women are equal in their stature or position before God, but God has created us differently. And so, in fact, I was just speaking with um, someone in the last couple of days and uh, we were talking about how um, the issue of the roles of men and women often become a watershed issue that ends up in a downgrade by adopting other false doctrines. God's word is really clear that we are equal, but we play different roles. Most Christians will at least acknowledge this in the home, um, though full egalitarians do not. Uh, full egalitarians say the husband and the wife should play the same role. Well, God's very clear that the wife should submit to the husband's authority. Uh, that doesn't mean that he's a dictator. 
that he's brutal in the way that he leads. But you have to have a head. If you don't have a head in a home, there's no direction. And if you have two heads, well, you have a, a monster. So, and if you have no head, there's just no direction. So God wants the man to be the head. That's the way God dictated it. That's what he spells out in his word. And it's very definitive and very clear. And this, of course, is where children learn to respect authority. Man by nature is not good. By nature, he has fallen. The heart is desperately wicked. He's a rebel. And that's why we need authority structure. And so where does a child learn to respect a police officer or the teacher in school or whoever it might be that's over him? He's supposed to learn that in the smallest uh, microcosm of life, namely the family. And so as the family breaks down, you have more and more rebellion. And so my heart goes out to the public school teachers whom we need to pray for, but most of them are just dealing with discipline issues all day long. And it's very difficult for them to teach in the government school system because of the breakdown of the family. It's, it's, it's really, it's sad to see what's happening. Well, the issues of complementarianism also apply in the church. God is very, very clear. He says that a woman should not teach or exercise authority over a man in first Timothy. Now I know there are parachurch organizations that basically say, um, someone just came back from a campus crusade for Christ on national staff training. And they said they had all these women, you know, opening the Bible and teaching over men and, I said, I know it's really changed when I was on staff with Campus Crusade. Now they call themselves crew. Uh, and I'm not necessarily opposed to the title. They were trying to make themselves uh, less offensive to Muslims. That's not a big issue. What is a big issue is the theology that in practice is being lived out. And so their rationale is, well, we're not a church. We are a parachurch organization. And so Paul's admonition in 1 Timothy 2.11 doesn't apply to us. It only applies to a local church. Well, listen, God is really clear in 1 Timothy 2.11 and 12 that this is a principle that underlies how Christians are to behave. And they're very inconsistent because just prior to that, Paul tells us that a woman is to adorn herself with proper clothing, modestly, discreetly. Can we say, well, this doesn't apply to the parachurch. And so if a woman wants to dress like a prostitute, that she can do that because this is a local church. And of course not. That's just stupid. And so we have no freedom to take this passage and to abuse it. And unfortunately, there's a lot of Christian women that have done this. And sometimes they have not used the argument that we are a parachurch organization But they've used the argument that, well, I am under the authority of the man who's over me. So you have, you know, like an Anne Graham Lotz. When she first spoke at a major evangelistic uh, conference for evangelists, uh, thousands of evangelists literally took their chairs and turned them around and gave her Uh, their backs, not because they hated her, but because they knew that what she was doing was a violation of scripture. And it was heartbreaking to these evangelists who were from countries all over the world. And she will often say, well, um, look, we have the right to preach or other women will say, you know, like Kay Arthur, she used to never, ever 
teach and mix audiences, but she slowly began to change her position. And now she'll teach at conferences where men are involved. And, and sometimes, you know, these women will say, like Beth Moore, she'll preach in a church on Sunday morning. She'll say, well, I'm under my pastor's authority. Well, listen, no pastor has authority to give you authority that God expressly forbids. And God couldn't have said it any plainer. I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. And then, of course, he gives the reasons why, because of the order of creation, and then, two, how the fall took place. And then he goes on in chapter 3, and he gives the qualifications for an off overseer. Remember, these chapter divisions are artificial, and they're male qualifications, meaning a woman cannot serve as a pastor of a church. So, number one, the fact that this seminary has opened the door for all these women to come who they know are going to become pastors is really pitiful. Uh, they've, they've already compromised it. They basically said money is more important to us. Paying the salaries and keeping the doors open are more important to us than doing what is right. That's really what they are saying in practice. So number one, that would be enough reason right there for me not to want to be a part of that seminary. Just that in and of itself. I used to, when I went to Dallas Seminary, I... Um, uh, would ride share every morning with a guy named Timothy Warren, who uh, is a professor now at Dallas Seminary, and he was, became a homiletics professor. And I saw Timothy uh, about a year ago at a conference I was in in Washington, D.C. We were talking about some of the things that were going on, and he said, Carl, I am the only professor at Dallas Seminary who will not teach in a mixed class with men and women. So I will only teach classes with men. Uh, because I do not want the woman in that homiletics class standing up, opening the Bible, preaching a sermon over the guys that are there because I feel like that's a violation of Scripture. I said, you're absolutely right. God bless you, Timothy, for taking a stance and affirming what is right. So this, uh, this seminary is double-minded. And unfortunately, you know, Dallas Seminary has moved away from its roots and they have in some other areas, which is very distressing to me. Look, there's a lot of good people there, but they're beginning to waver. And listen, you can study the history of seminaries. And, you know, Harvard Divinity School was once a great seminary that was started. In fact, Harvard was started for the express purpose to equip men to preach the gospel because they recognized that there was not the needed number of men willing to come from England and other places and migrate to the United States to fill pulpits. And so John Harvard donated his own personal library and gave a piece of property that became Harvard College and later Harvard University for the express purpose of training men to preach the gospel. In fact, in the original gatepost, it says, it says for a literate clergy, for a literate clergy. That's the express purpose they were started. Uh, Yale, Princeton, those were once great seminaries. Today, they are so far away from God. And so seminaries and sometimes parachurch organizations take a, a turn. The YMCA, you know, they've got a beautiful 40-story building in downtown New York City. Uh, it must be worth $100 million, $200 million. And I remember one of my friends going to tour that, and he was on staff with Campus Crusade. This was 25 years ago. And he said, well, what do you do? He said, well, I work for Campus Crusade. And, 
And then the uh, guy who was giving him a guided tour of their headquarters said, Campus Crusade. He said, we used to be like Campus Crusade. We were once a evangelistic organization. Look, the YMCA has very little to do with Jesus Christ today for the most part. There's some bright exceptions here and there. But for the most part, they are anything but the young men's Christian organization that was started by uh, association started by Dwight L. Moody. So uh, just realize is that seminaries and colleges and parachurch organizations can take a turn just like a local church can and they don't heed the admonition. So this seminary in Fayetteville, they are on a compromised, uh, they're on compromised ground. So I wouldn't even, I wouldn't go. I, I, I couldn't because uh, I would constantly be considered a contentious person and uh, for preaching what's true. And I would basically, by my presence as a born-again, conservative, Bible-believing, take seriously what God says kind of Christian, be giving endorsement. They'd say, oh, Carl Brogy, he's a, he's a good man, and he teaches at that seminary in Fayetteville. That's maybe where I should go. And so I, then I end up giving endorsement to bad theology and certainly the practice of bad theology. So um, that would be my answer to you. I appreciate the question. All right, very good. We had a, a caller call in, and I'm not exactly sure whether we transcribed this or understood this person correctly because it just doesn't quite make sense, but I'll read it anyway. If a believer dies in his or her sin and goes to hell, is he, she able to continue to sin there, or does he, she lose that ability. Okay, so what they're basically asking is if a person dies as an unbeliever, will they continue to sin in hell? Well, they, they use the term if a believer dies. Uh, that's the part I could not oh, understand. Oh, I see. Well, my guess is, is they um, may, maybe, and again, I don't want to judge you because the question isn't crisp here, but let me approach it from a couple of different ways. Sometimes people have thought, this usually comes out of Pentecostal theology, and in one sense, it's, it's taught by Roman Catholics that if you die with sin in your soul, a mortal sin, that you're damned. Uh, if it's a venial sin, then you're not damned, but you will certainly go to purgatory like most Catholics believe. Uh, Pope Gregory in the seventh century invented the doctrine of purgatory. You won't find it in the Bible. He also invented a papal infallibility, which was convenient that the Pope, when he speaks ex cathedra, speaks with the same level of authority as the Bible. But they have taught that if you die with sin, there are consequences. And so some Pentecostals think if your sin is not under the blood, when you die, that you can die and go to hell and lose your salvation. And what they are confusing is the difference between positional forgiveness and experiential forgiveness. What they are confusing is the difference between our relationship with God and our fellowship with God. So first John one nine, which says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us and to cleanse us. That is not a verse that is written to unbelievers is a salvation verse or even a verse written to believers to maintain your salvation. It's a verse written to Christians so that you might have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the father and with his son. So if a Christian dies, even in the act of a sin, if he's a real genuine believer, he goes straight to heaven. Uh, there are consequences for any time that we've logged out of fellowship with God because it's lost opportunity to serve in the power of the Holy Spirit. So if you're a real believer and you've been born again, 
your salvation is secure and you do not maintain that salvation through confession of sin. You maintain fellowship with God. One, I think this would be really helpful to this caller because it sounds like you're a little confused. And, and I will say this too, that when someone visits our church and they come from a Pentecostal denomination, usually there's about a 50-50 chance that they even really understand the gospel because it is so experience delivered, uh, driven. So experience, uh, the theology is delivered and in, in, in driven by experience. And so what they are often taught is if you die with some sin in your soul, you better get it right or you're going to die and go to hell. And, and so people begin to hear, well, there's something you can do to lose your salvation. And, uh, and then they hear in practice, then there's something I have to do to earn my salvation. And they really don't understand the grace of God. Um, but I, I don't know wh- where you are at in your journey, but I would really encourage you to um, go to a uh, search the scriptures dot org and look for the back to basic series and listen to the first two major teachings. The first is assurance of salvation and eternal security. And we spend, uh, there are three lessons on that one handout. And then there's another two or three lessons on the handout called experiencing fellowship with the Lord. And it's uh, addressing how a Christian is to deal with sin now that he's a saved person. And I think that would be really useful to you. And if this caller is unsure of their own personal salvation, then maybe even prior to that, listen to, would you like to have God as your friend or come to a meet the pastor? Okay. Uh, They just called back and, and they said, well, what they meant to say was, would an unbeliever, if he died in his okay, sin... Okay, so that's a different question. Yeah. So if an unbeliever dies in his sin, you know, how much opportunity do you have? You know, people say, you know, unbelievers have said to me, well, you know, okay, I reject Jesus and I get to hell. I'm going to be there with all my friends and we're just going to have a big drinking party and, you know, we're going to be drunk for the rest of our lives and, you know, forget you Christians. And, and no, it doesn't work that way. Um, you, in fact, that the man who dies and goes to hell in Luke 16, he begs for a drop of water. There's nothing to drink in hell. It's a place of outer darkness. There's no fellowship in hell. It's not like, oh, you're down there with all your friends and you're, you're cursing God together and you're, you know, living in sexual, it doesn't work that way. Um, you are under the eternal wrath of God, not because God wishes that he wishes for none to perish, but for all to come to repentance, but because you've rejected God's provision. So there's not this big party in hell where we just send it up for all of eternity. doesn't work that way. In fact, uh, even our relationships with people in resurrected bodies change. Jesus said, for instance, those who go to heaven, we're like the angels. That is, we don't procreate. Uh, we are like the angels we, in our resurrected bodies. Procreation is something here for earth. And I think you could say the opposite of the resurrected body an unbeliever gets. Understand, not only does the believer get a resurrected body, the unbeliever gets a resurrected body. The body that I have right now is not suited for heaven. And the body that an unbeliever has right now is not suited for hell. If you went to hell in your current body, you'd be consumed in a flash and you'd have no body. So the body that's designed for hell is also raised up out of the grave anew, uh, not like Christ's body and that it's sinless, but it is forever able to experience 
the wrath of God consciously, knowingly. And so Jesus uh, spoke of this coming resurrection that is going to happen someday. Uh, He is the one who has the power to uh, execute judgment and all authority has been given to him. And so the father loves his son and shows him all things that he himself is doing and greater works than these will he show him that you may marvel for just as the father raises the dead and gives them life. Even so the son also gives life to whom he wishes for not even the father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the son in order that all may honor the son, even as they honor the father. He who does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. There are people who say, well, yeah, I may not believe in Jesus, but I, I believe in God and that's good enough. No, he who does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has, that's a present tense, not will have, but has right now eternal life. Eternal life is not just heaven. It's a relationship with God as a later chapter, the 17th chapter will affirm. Uh, and you can't lose something that's eternal. And this person, he says, is passed out of death into life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God. And those who hear shall live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, that an hour is coming in which all who are in the tomb shall hear his voice. And shall come forth those who did the good, uh, the NASB and other translations add the word works or deeds in italics. It's not a part of the original, but it's assumed and rightly so. Those who did the good to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil or evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. So there's uh, uh, two kinds of resurrections. One is a resurrection of life and the other is a resurrection of judgment. Now, he's just said that we're saved by our faith in the Lord. But if our faith is genuine, then it shows itself in either good deeds, which are genuine works of conversion, or it shows itself in evil deeds. Because if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. So if a person confesses Jesus and his life doesn't change, it just means it was a false confession. It means he never truly, genuinely had faith in Jesus to forgive his sin. Anyway, so um, hell is not a big party. It's a place of torment. And we will study the doctrine of hell in great detail as we work through the latter chapters of the Revelation. And so you might want to uh, follow us as we work through the book if you're not local. All right. I believe we've got time for one more question. Will from Douglasville, Georgia writes, what is the role of the Holy Spirit once we are all in heaven? Oh, I'm sorry. We've got a live caller. All right, we'll we go give there. live preferences, so let's go to them. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, Pastor Brogy. Thank you for taking my call. Yeah, happy to. Uh, I've been speaking to people, you know, every now and then about the slow progression downward of TV and other things like, for example, you know, you heard about TV and how people made a big deal of you know, I love Lucy with Ricky and Lucy in the same bedroom, but in different beds. And then it progressed to the Brady Bunch where they were in the same bed, but fully clothed. And then it went on to what we have now. Same thing with music and all that. 
I thought about Solomon and how he was the leader God allowed him to reign during the golden age of Israel. Now, although I know that we have never had uh, a time in this our history where we've been perfect, can you think of something that might come close to a golden age of the United States as far as whether it be D.L. Moody or Jonathan Edwards or Billy Sunday or Billy Graham or just a, an era that you think we were maybe, you know, closer to God with revival and, and maybe uh, maybe a higher moral standard than we have now? Yeah, I would say uh, largely through the time frame we call the first and second great awakening, two great revivals in the United States uh, that took place and God's people began to pray. It started with the second great awakening started with a prayer meeting in New York City with 10 people. And that prayer meeting grew. And after three years, they said at lunchtime every day, virtually every church in New York City was filled with people praying for America. And of course, tens of thousands, millions of people were converted through a sweeping movement of the spirit of God. And, and that resulted in, uh, over the course of the next hundred and some years, uh, tens of thousands of people committing themselves to taking the gospel to the world. Even in the early part of the 20th century, we were seeing the fruit of the second great awakening through the student volunteer movement. And they held a meeting in 1917 in Kansas city. And, uh, it was really an amazing meeting. Some 30,000 students showed up college students, 10,000 of whom committed themselves to become full-time missionaries. And it spread back on campuses across the nation. And another hundred thousand signed pledge cards card saying, well, God hasn't led us to go, but we are going to pray for these missionaries and we're going to help fund them to make it a reality. So there have been bright spots indeed in the American uh, spiritual economy. And we're certainly not in one of those right now. And because what we're seeing in America is you not unique to our nation, but it's concurrent with nations around the world, uh, coupled with events that are taking place in Israel uh, most people who even know a little bit of the Bible have their eyes wide open because they recognize that we are seeing prophecy fulfilled in our day that points to the second coming of Christ. There is no prophecy for the rapture since the day of Pentecost. It could have happened at any moment, but the second coming is a predicted program. We'll talk a little bit about this on Sunday as we continue our study of the revelation. Anyway, we're out of time. Uh, thanks again for joining us for this past hour. And if you have questions, you can go to searchthescriptures.org, click on the icon, ask Dr. Brogy a question. Sometimes it takes us a couple months to actually get your question in the studio. We take, give priority to those who email direct, but eventually we'll answer it and we'll email you back when it is answered. Have a great day. 